Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures high yield account. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It's worse than we thought, and we have only one job to do. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Welcome back. Another week and another week of the coronavirus as the infections mount and the death toll rises. Wherever we are in the United States or around the world, whoever we are and whatever political affiliations or beliefs we might have, we now only have one common enemy, and that is defeating this coronavirus. And for the United States, President Trump has designated his vice president, Mike Pence, to be his general in charge. And so we start this week with Vice President Mike Pence and what he would say to the millions of Americans who are losing their jobs. Well, I I want to tell the American people that help is on the way. Uh, Thanks to uh, the president's leadership and strong bipartisan support uh, in the House and Senate, uh, we passed a historic uh, relief bill that will soon be speeding uh, aid to uh, American families. The average family of four will receive a direct payment of $3,400. Uh, there are going to be uh, loans which will operate as grants, essentially, for small businesses to support payroll. Uh, during uh, the course of the coronavirus epidemic, uh, businesses uh, of uh, uh, the small businesses around America to be able to keep people on their payroll during that period of time. We're going to be supporting our, our major industries around the country, uh, and, uh, and we'll get through this. We've supported unemployment insurance benefits for the states. We're working closely with governors 
to make sure that those that are impacted uh, have the support uh, to uh, to see uh, their family, uh, to see their businesses, and to see their communities uh, through the course of the coronavirus. And uh, we really do believe that as Americans put into practice uh, the president's coronavirus guidelines, 30 days to slow the spread, uh, that will every single day be one day closer to putting the coronavirus behind us. Uh, our priority is health. Our priority is the health and well-being and, and the lives of the American people supporting our incredible health care workers. Uh, the president has every confidence that as we help people through this time, uh, that the economy will come back stronger than ever before. But we'll stay focused on we'll stay focused on defeating this virus and giving the American people and our health care workers uh, the tools to do just that. Let's turn to that battle against what the president has called that invisible enemy. That is the coronavirus. Uh, Bloomberg reported earlier this week that there's a classified intelligence information that China actually sat on the information about how bad it was. If you had known when China did how bad it was, would it have made our battle plan against this enemy different? How many American lives might have been saved? Well, what what uh, there is no question uh, that had China been more forthcoming than they have been. Uh, about the impact and the scope uh, and the nature of the coronavirus, not just to the United States but to the world, uh, that uh, that it, it would have made a difference. Um, that being said, well, we did uh, we did have a team on the ground in February. We were able to look at their data. Uh, we drew uh, conclusions from that, and I have to tell you, I think. You know, when the very first uh, coronavirus case emerged in this country, someone who had been in China and contracted it there, in a matter of days, the president stood up the White House Coronavirus Task Force, suspended all travel from China. From there would uh, issue travel advisories for South Korea uh, and uh, portions of Italy. We began screening 100% of all passengers uh, from both of those countries going on to, to uh, suspend travel from Europe, the U.K., Ireland. I, I think all along the way, the American people have seen that uh, this president uh, has been willing to take decisive and at times, David, unprecedented action to put the health uh, of America first. And, uh, and, and we are continuing to bring not only a whole-of-government approach at every level, federal, state, and local, but also... Uh, a whole-of-America approach. We're seeing American businesses step forward uh, as never before to meet this moment. And uh, that's where we'll keep our focus. Uh, Mr. Vice President, I don't think there's anyone who questions that the president and you, the entire team of the White House, is doing everything you can at this point to try to stop this. At the same time, to some extent, it appears we've been playing from behind. The virus has been ahead of us. Do we have enough testing capability right now to get ahead of the virus? I'm talking about not the hotspots of New York, for example, or Detroit, increasingly New Orleans. Do we know, do you know, what are likely to be the next hot spots? Uh, well, what I can tell you, David, uh, is that uh, because of the public-private partnership we forged with these vast commercial labs uh, that your listeners know well, LabCorp, Quest, others, uh, companies like Roche, we're now testing over 100,000 Americans a day. But, but a very significant breakthrough happened this weekend. Again, moving with, uh, with record speed, the FDA-approved Abbott Laboratories point-of-care test. It's a, it literally is a 15-minute test that people can have administered at their local doctor's office. We're in the process of identifying the thousands of, uh, of Abbott Laboratory machines that are around the country 
uh, we're making sure that uh, that we're distributing those not just uh, not just the areas that are seeing an impact today, but but we want to distribute those uh, as Abbott Laboratories making about fifty thousand tests a day now. Um, we want to distribute those to areas where we can do it, what what you had implied is the kind of surveillance testing that would allow uh, states that currently don't have a significant outbreak to be forewarned and forearmed and be able to do the kind of contact tracing that would limit uh, the exposure and the spread of the coronavirus. Vice President Mike Pence, we are all looking for some hope, a glimmer of hope and a possible vaccine. So we talked this week to Johnson & Johnson's Alex Gorski, who thinks he may have a promising candidate. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Johnson & Johnson announced this week that it has a promising candidate for a possible vaccine for the coronavirus, one that could be in field trials as early as September, and in success, if they have success, they could have available for the public as early as the second quarter of next year. I talked with Johnson & Johnson CEO Alex Gorski, and I asked him just how hopeful we should be. Obviously, there's a lot of despair out there, right? rightfully so, when you think about how people are being impacted by this. But I've also got to say, I, I do think that there is some reason uh, to be optimistic when I see some of the partnering and collaboration. And that's really what this is about, our announcement about partnering with the U.S. government uh, to accelerate the development of our vaccine. Now, what I would always say in these cases is, you know, we need to be thoughtful. And um, we're, we're very hopeful as we look at our early data uh, that in these cases tends to be, uh, you know, quite correlated with what we would expect to see as we take this into human testing in September of this year. Uh, but we also know we need to complete those other trials. And uh, we'll be doing that. At the same time, we're going to be ramping up our production. Uh, and, and we'll have global production. We expect to have that both in Europe. Europe, as well as the United States. And we expect to be in a position by the first quarter uh, to have a much better uh, perspective on the vaccine itself, on the kind of quantities that we would have available. Our goal is to have hundreds of millions available by that time. Uh, And then obviously to work with regulators and other people around the world, uh, depending on where the coronavirus is at that time, to try to make this uh, accessible on an emergency basis. Alex, give us a sense of what that testing process is. Is it, is it the normal testing process you'd have for another vaccine? Or given the urgency and the size of this problem, are there certain things that can be done to expedite that? Well, David, look, my sense is that regulators, uh, both in Europe and the United States, let alone around the world, other healthcare authorities and the government are doing everything they can to expedite this. At the same time, we have to balance that to make sure that we gather the efficacy, the safety data that's so important uh, before, of course, we would be using this on a large scale. Now, in this particular case, we're working with a platform. Uh, So think of it as a vaccine, part of a vaccine, uh, where we've got Uh, significant experience in areas like SARS, things like Ebola, things like HIV. Uh, And so we are confident in the safety uh, data that we've seen thus far. And it's it's already the vector's been used uh, in elderly. It's been used in uh, younger children. uh, And uh, so that gives us confidence from a safety perspective. 
the early testing that we've done so far that includes a range of animal as well as in vivo testing also indicates that we should have an active uh, vaccine as well. But of course, we need to complete the trials that we'll be doing in humans in the fourth quarter, uh, you know, before we develop uh, the final data set, uh, you know, that would help us make that decision at the appropriate moment. So to push ahead and push perhaps farther than we should, if you were successful in success in the fourth quarter, when would we have a vaccine available to people? So, David, look, what we would intend to do, again, work closely with regulators so that by late December or early January, we would expect to have uh, some type of interim analysis in our first in human trials. And then at that point, we would have to take a look at that data set in its totality. Uh, I think clearly we would be also looking at what is that, how is the virus proceeding and, and what kind of state is it in around the world uh, and then make a decision. So I think at some point uh, in the second quarter, we could be in a position again on an emergency basis, depending on where the pandemic is going, where there could be some access to this. And then we would expect that to ramp up significantly over the rest of the year. Give us a sense, because I know you're committing a lot of funds to production, not just the development of vaccine, but in success to be able to produce a lot of it. Uh, how big could you get? How soon? If, in fact, it does work. Well, you know, you're, you're right, David. To have a, a vaccine to really work effectively, it takes two components, at least. I mean, first of all, it's demonstrating efficacy and safety of your vaccine. And that's what we're working very hard on, literally as we speak, but also, uh, as I said, some of our trials will start in September in human. We'll have some additional data by December. But you also need to produce them in sufficient volumes and quantity so that you can actually make a difference in the broader population. And we're very fortunate in that we have a, uh, a very unique production capability uh, where it gives us the ability and, and relatively small containers to make very large volumes in the hundreds of millions of doses of this vaccine. Now, again, let me be clear. We still have more work to do to determine the exact yield of these particular uh, you know, technologies uh, and, and to compare that versus the safety and efficacy data. But based upon the original work that we've done, again, we feel quite confident that we can be in the range of hundreds of millions of vaccines as we would move into the early part of 2001 with the goal to have a billion in place by the end of the year. And, and look, all of this would only be possible with a partnership that we have with the U.S. government. We've been, again, with the FDA, with HHS, with agencies like BARDA and CEPI in Europe. Uh, and, uh, and frankly, the great work of our scientists like Dr. Paul Stoff Stoffels and Johan von Hoof, as well as our supply chain, making sure that we can get adequate supplies, again, in Europe, in the United States, and also in other locations around the world. How complicating is it, the incredible pressure being brought to bear on the healthcare system overall? We just have really horrific stories about various hospitals really being overtaxed. Does that affect your testing ability at all? No, not, not directly. And look, what we do know is this is going to be a multifaceted effort. I mean, number one, we need to stay focused on social distancing, great hygiene, sort of prevent people from getting the disease in the first place. Next, we need to continue to ramp up all of our efforts in the hospitals. And here's where we've really got our hospital heroes, the, the physicians, the nurses, the aides that are working full time to make sure that we've got the test kits, the personal protective equipment, uh, the ventilators, the number of beds that are required, that we're doing the right job of triaging these patients so we're not consuming 
unnecessary protective equipment uh, or beds or ventilators. And uh, they, they are just doing a tremendous job. But clearly, depending on where you are, if you're in New York City right now, it is literally all hands on deck doing everything we can. And I think that's going to be essential to continue. Now, there's also some great work being done with medicines, with therapeutics, and that whether it's antivirals, whether it's comp- we'll go after the virus itself to stop it from replicating. In other cases, there are drugs that how can you boost up or, frankly, in some cases, turn down your body's immune system uh, to stop it from overreacting in certain cases or, or even new blood therapies. And I'm, I'm quite confident that with all the great minds in the biopharmaceutical industry, the, the billions of dollars that are being invested, that in the coming months, we should have a therapeutic. But then, of course, we're also going to need that vaccine to stop and prevent this from occurring in the first place. And so I think taking all of those measures in a very comprehensive way is really the best bet that we have on tackling the coronavirus and, uh, you know, making sure that uh, we, we can... We can get on. That was Johnson & Johnson CEO Alex Gorski. Coming up on Wall Street Week, the coronavirus has changed our world in many ways we can't imagine. But David Cordani, the CEO of Cigna, thinks he does know one way. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The coronavirus has changed our world in all sorts of ways we really don't understand. But David Cordani, he's the CEO of Signy, thinks he does know one way it's changed, and that is the advent of telemedicine, which has gone up dramatically, and he thinks will not go away. So we took a step forward um, after clearing the way for individuals to cover their testing, um, clearing the way relative to telemedicine in 90-day pharmaceutical supplies, we took a step forward and announced that we are stepping in on behalf of our customers to take care of their financial out-of-pocket costs as relates to COVID-19 treatment, whether that's a copay, coinsurance, or otherwise. Uh, we felt as though given this unique time we find ourselves in in the United States, um, that step was warranted to provide the peace of mind to the individuals we serve. So um, it's a meaningful step forward. There's two additional items we announced as well. Um, We're um, transferring or redeploying um, several hundred of our nurses and doctors to go support um, telemedicine infrastructure uh, with some of our partners as uh, more individuals look to telemedicine to fulfill their needs. So um, we're expanding access from that standpoint. And then lastly, David, we're um, standing up um, with a, a partner of ours, an artificial intelligence partner of ours, 
um, an online free capability to go in and risk check your COVID-19 or health symptoms to help you determine whether or not you may be um, confronting the disease or not and try to help to provide information to individuals before they may need to go um, pursue testing or otherwise. So some really important announcements, all putting our customers or patients front and center in, in the decision-making. Give us some sense, if you can, of the possible range of the copay part, the first part that you mentioned there. We hope that not many, a high percentage of your people actually get it, but uh, potentially how many people could that affect? Uh, we don't have an estimate in terms of individuals. Obviously, the rate and pace of that is going to be highly um, dictated over the course of the next month uh, or so as it relates to the effectiveness of the U.S.'s policy around social distancing and the like from that standpoint. Um, but we were clear this covers our commercial risk population, our commercial exchange population, our Medicare Advantage population, our Medicaid population, um, and then um, also our global clients for those individuals who are, who are consuming care in the United States. Um, and then lastly, for our corporate uh, ASO clients, uh, we're working with those clients to advise them on um, positioning they should take um, as we serve them on their behalf. So we do not have a patient estimate at this point in time. David, you mentioned the telemedicine, which is something that we're talking about a lot these days, both because hospitals are way overcrowded, but also there's some risk in just going to your doctor, given the need for social distancing. What are you seeing in terms of increases in telemedicine that warranted you sending these uh, physicians, these clinicians, out to help? Sure, David. So even before uh, COVID-19, we as a company were stepping forward saying we wanted to expand what we call the um, front end of care um, and bring more care and more services to individuals. So in, in three different ways. One is um, telemedicine, um, both medical as well as behavioral health services. Um, second is to attempt to re-envision what could take place in the home um, in terms of expanding what could take place in the home. And then third is working with our physician partners to expand the services that could take place um, in a less invasive setting, more specifically in a physician's office as opposed to an outpatient uh, facility or the like. So point is, we've been ramping toward an expansion of virtual care and in-home care in advance of, of COVID-19. Now, to your core of your question, individuals are more open to experiencing care virtually today than ever before because of COVID-19. And, and we're seeing the volumes ramp in quantums, multiples of, of what they were ramping at in advance for both medical health as well as behavioral health. And that's what led us to um, redeploy um, resources that we have, nurses and doctors, to partners like MD Live and others um, to expand that reach. And, and we think um, this will be a societal change that probably will continue to go forward long after COVID-19 because it's a convenient, safe, effective evidence-based way to consume many aspects of care. David, we're all focused, of course, on COVID-19 and, and the uh, disease that is spreading across the country. But I know, because you and I have talked about it before, you're also concerned about what you call whole person health. How are you addressing that issue? Yeah, so, uh, David, I appreciate the, the whole person health. That, that is our orientation around trying to connect the um, mental health and physical health aspects. And just as a backdrop, but we know today in the United States, as an example, if an individual has a chronic disease, of which about half of Americans confront at least one chronic disease, you're seven times more likely to have clinical depression than if you don't have a chronic disease. But if that clinical depression goes untreated, um, you're more likely to have follow-on onset of additional medical or behavioral conditions from that standpoint. So we bring the behavioral health resources into our chronic or case management uh, system from that standpoint. 
in the current environment, um, it's going to get strained even further because there's separation um, that is taking place, to your point, and we know that separation increases loneliness and loneliness increases uh, mental health challenges. So we're expanding and trying to press ourselves relative to, as we talked about, telemedicine for behavioral health, but also inbound interactions to our customers or patients from our nurses, from our behavioral health professionals, from our health coaches to try to elevate and broaden the levels of engagement, especially during this unique time. So I think it presses the importance of engagement up even further. That was David Cordani of Cigna. Coming up on Wall Street Week, Brian Moynihan of Bank of America gives us his views on what lies ahead. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. There's no question that we're facing an economic crisis the likes of which we've never seen before. And Bank of America is right in the middle of that crisis. But when I talk with Brian Moynihan, the chairman and CEO of Bank of America, he says we need to start with the health crisis and address that before we move on to the economics. Well, I think it's clear it's a it's a healthcare crisis. Um, there's a, a this virus out there that we're all in a war, and everybody in the world has one con, common enemy, and that's to uh, win the war against this virus. And now that is a human, humanitarian crisis, and that there's people that are hit, hit by it and sick, and we got to make sure they're taken care of it, and then we got to take care of the rest of society so they don't get it, which means how you run your company, how you think about how you pull your resources and stuff has changed dramatically over the last few weeks. If we have gotten into social distancing, all to stop the virus and win the war on that. When we win that, the economic impact will be mitigated. And that's what you could see in the economy before it, it hit us. And that's what we expect to see in the economy after it hits us. So how have you reordered your priorities at Bank of America? You just said that if you run a company, you have to reorder your priorities for this particular crisis. Give us an example of how you're reordering Bank of America's priorities. Well, we, we took a quick uh, look and said, in the end of the day, our response has to be team-centric. In other words, protect our team, get our team in a position so they can support the customers, even if they're working from home. And it has to be client-centric, what we do for our customers, whether commercial customers or consumer customers, and ultimately, how do we help society? So if you think about the team, you know, the number one issue was how can you do all the work that we do with this great team working every day across this wonderful platform? but do it in a way that's never been contemplated with 150,000 teammates went from working in the office to working from home across four or five weeks. And, you know, the logistics and that, the network connectivity embedded in that, the ability to distribute calls differently, to have people ultimately ability to trade from home. But on the other hand, we had to have 40 or 4,300 branches. We had to keep them open so cash could move in society. We're an essential industry as uh, labeled by the federal government that we have to be open and we have to be able to keep the securities markets open and that takes centralized operations groups. So we had to also reposition how our traders and our teammates in the branches and our teammates in the call centers and our teammates in the operations groups worked at the same time. So we had this massive movement of hundreds of thousands of people to home. At the same time, we had to reposition everybody left to make sure they could operate well. Uh, so uh, when did it first really sink in with you that you were going to have to do something as dramatic as have 150,000 people work from home? I know we all saw you sit next to the president. The president's right when you went down to visit with him. I know you met with some of his staff. Uh, did that help drive home to you just how large this crisis is and it's not going away? 
Well, I think as we saw, we saw a bit of this set play out in our foreign operations. Those of us, you know, companies like ourselves have operations in in China, in Hong Kong, and the impact in those areas were, you know, first and foremost, gave us a little bit of hint. The belief of what was going to happen in the United States at the time, back in January and you know, early February, was, you know, this was out there and not ours. But as we went through February and we went to some of the, heard Dr. Fauci speak at a conference, and then ultimately we went in the White House in early March, the group of bankers expecting to talk to the president about banking and what we're doing for customers and things like that. You know, suddenly the first thing we did for half the time was to hear from Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, and the head of the CDC talk about the healthcare crisis, and that was the night where the president stopped the uh, travel from Europe. And the gravity of the situation when you heard of the impact that the administration was going to have to the economy, which was at that point almost under, you know, linear. You could just extrapolate if you said, I'm going to stop all this movement of people, what will happen? You know, it really settled in on me. And, and, and we were running the company and moving people to work from home. We just said we have to go hard and fast. And, and, and we really quickly moved from sort of alternating shifts and things like that to complete work from the home. And then, you know, then you start to see the human toll start to build up the cases uh, and, uh, and the issues of people in hospital and deaths, which are horrible. Brian, as you said, this is first and foremost a health care crisis. At the same time, the best way to fight it is actually to shut the economy down, which does real damage to the economy at the same time. Let's talk about that, and particularly your vantage into that economy through individuals and small businesses. We now have a plan through this CARES plan, the $2 trillion infusion of capital, where a lot of small businesses can get money fast. Is that going to happen? When are you going to be flooded with applications? Well, the, the let me back up more broadly. So if you think about what we saw in our customer base, as we went through January and February, we saw with our consumers spending money at a much faster rate, a double-digit rate versus 2019. So the economy is probably going to be a, grow faster than people projected would, would have been my guess. Then as you went into March and you saw the situation, even even with the impact that happened in March, especially in the latter half of March, we'll still we'll still see our consumer spending in the aggregate in March. And this has cost $3 trillion in a year, so it's not a small sample. Be up for March. Not a lot, but 2 or 3%, something like that. And year-to-date, it'll be up almost double, you know, high, high single digits. That is faster than last year versus the year before. So the economy is on this path. It just, as you watch March play out, has changed dramatically. So what the, the Federal Reserve did is start to have a lot of liquidity programs to stabilize the markets. What Congress passed with its stimulus bill is an effort to keep people employed. And so, number one, at Bank of America, we've told our teammates they have a job to year end, which is important. And many other employers have told that. So that to the extent we keep people employed, keep cash uh, into the household, that'll be terrific and keep a baseline economy growing. The other question is how do you help small businesses do that? And that's the program that's been announced that uh, they're going to implement. The key to that is to how do we get that money out quickly as the bank industry on behalf of, of Congress and the president and the administration. And, you know, they developed a set of regulations. They are coming out and they're out in process and they've been published or they're starting to publish them. It'll be, we just ask pay, uh, customers to be patient. My advice to customers is go back to their banking, who they already have a lending relationship with because the kind of documentation is the kind of documentation you work with those banks. We'll have, you know, millions of customers come to us and we'll put them through if they desire into the program. And it'll be very good because they can continue to pay their employees. That's what the money's geared to do and also cover some overhead, both of which are good things to help these small businesses through this tough time. And 
we'll do, you know, we're going to, we're setting up shop and activating thousands of people to be able to take the applications, a huge digital presence. And, you know, I think if everybody can just do it in an orderly fashion, be good for, very good for the U.S. economy. In order to get the money out the door, which is what the small business needs to hold badly, because they often don't have the money to keep their employees on payroll, are you willing to take something of a leap of faith? Are other banks willing to take a leap of faith? Because you're going to be, have applications that normally maybe you wouldn't give a loan against, but now the government's saying, well, that'll turn into a grant if they keep their employees. Does that work? Do you have enough faith that you'll actually deploy a lot of cash that way? Oh, yeah, for the for the clients, it's a it's a straightforward set of needed documents that they have to supply. And if they supply those documents, they can get a loan and a calculated amount based on the people they pay in the first couple months of the year. And then they can have a forgiveness to continue the people employed after that. And so, for this particular element, it's government guaranteed. So it's not a it's a government program, and all we are as its banking system, our colleagues, my peer colleagues, and stuff is a a you know, an implementer of a, of a progress. And let me go to the other side, just so you know, because the strength of our banking system and the capabilities and the capital we've had and built up in the processes, you know, the industry, you know, one of our trade groups announced today, BPI, that the industry had funded more than $400 billion in commercial loans, most of that in the month of March. Bank of America has done $70 billion of loans, uh, commercial loans, in this month. Still have way more than our required amount of capital, earn money, etc. So it's a pretty interesting thing that the bank industry has been able to step up because of its strength in supply to the SME businesses and even large businesses, the capital, while the government's coming in helping the small businesses, which are the hardest to get the money to. In 2008, 2009, the banks were in constant communication with government authorities, whether it was the Fed, whether it was the Treasury or others. Is that going on now? What sort of communications are you having back and forth with the federal government? Well, it depends on the issue, but it, obviously in, the, in terms of the SBA and Treasury program, we they sought our opinions on how to make sure they could get the money out in an orderly fashion, the right way, and, and carry out uh, you know Congress's intent and the administration's intent, and so we're heavily involved in that. On some of the liquidity and how the markets are working, my colleague Tom Montag and his team are, are talking to you know, all different parts of the architecture, whether it's the Fed or the Treasury, to talk about what's going on in the markets every, you know, on a given day and where liquidity is needed or where actions needed. And obviously, the Fed is talking to us from what are we seeing in the markets, and and so the OCC and other regulators, uh, you know, what are you seeing from clients? What are you what are you hearing out there? Because you want an instant transmission mechanism, because a lot of the data people will look at is you know is lagging just by the definition. It has to be put together and reported. All of us, in our own ways, are trying to live day to day, week to week, and get through this crisis. Uh, but we, I would like to look forward just a little bit. Some economists are talking about now the possibility of demand destruction being permanent reduction in consumption because of this crisis. Uh, as you look at it, is there a risk of that? How large a risk is there? You know, at the end of the day, one of the things that uh, is great is if you think about uh, the, the, the throughput of the U.S. economy, um, if we, with the amount of stimulus, uh, the amount of fiscal support that's coming, the amount of monetary support, if you look at economists with their, you know, 25% down in the second quarter and then working their way out, the sheer amount of dollars net at a $5 trillion you know, quarterly economy, twenty trillion a year, is overwhelmed by the amount of support coming to the market. All that is geared to getting us out the other side of this faster. There was no structural issues in the economy. It's a healthcare crisis, and I think if we mitigate that healthcare crisis, you will see on the other side of this, you know, a, a rebound. And that's what our economists say. So as people have adjusted their second quarter down more due to the unemployment, the new claims last week, you know, what people are guessing that will happen this week, you know, there'll be a deeper downdraft, but. Most of the economists that I see and our internal economists believe on the other side is, is a reversion back to where the economy 
almost gets back to the same size, you know, at some time in next year that it was prior to this, which is a pretty fast turnaround. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's okay. the core belief because you're not changing anything fundamentally about the business cycle, about what's going on. You're saying if you get by this virus, it works. If you look at China right now, you're seeing the data get stronger. And because the because in the fact they're on the other side of a of this uh, situation, and you're seeing you know we're seeing that when I talk to our commercial clients that you know their factories that they work with a 65 70 75 percent up we're seeing goods and ship coming out of China, um, and you're seeing those factories start up, and even in some of the places that, you know that were most affected, you're seeing people go out and shop. That was Brian Moynihan, chairman and CEO of Bank of America. This has been another edition of Wall Street Week. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.